0: Hey everyone, this is Chad Arms, pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thanks for taking some time to listen to my latest sermon, a sermon about the Sermon on the Mount and how we can apply it to our lives. It will play in just a minute, but before it does, I want to tell you about a really cool resource that we're giving away with this series. We understand that spiritual growth can be really hard, and I personally get that even when you leave having heard one of my sermons with the best intentions to apply it to your life, turning those best intentions into real life actions can be pretty difficult and so with this series we are giving away devotional sheets these devotional sheets contain daily activities that will take about 10 minutes for you to complete the activities are varied from day to day one day has a devotional writing written by me another has questions another has guided prayer and there's a few other things too i really do think that these Devotional sheets will help you to immerse yourself more fully in the passages of scripture that I'm preaching on in this series and I hope that you will get a copy. You can get a copy by visiting one of our services or for you online listeners, you can get one by going to wilsonville.church/sotm. That's wilsonville.church/sotm. The sotm stands for Sermon on the Mount. Hey, again thanks for listening. I really do hope that this sermon will help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. Today we finish uh, the, the Sermon on the Mount and finish our look at Jesus' longest and most influential sermon that's recorded for us in Scripture. And uh, we also have a devotional booklet on that. And in this week's uh, entry that I wrote, it uh, I talked about uh, how I was as a kid when it came to sports. And, it, and it's so aligned with a story that I heard in the last couple of weeks about Russell Westbrook, who's a basketball player. And an old teammate of Russell Westbrook's was talking. Uh, he was doing an interview, and in this interview, he he said he was talking to a guy that doesn't like Russell Westbrook very much, and he said, "Look, you should like this guy. He's one of the most competitive people you'll ever meet." And so it's like, "Well, tell me a story about that." And and he said, "This is this is a real story." He said, "I was afraid." to talk to people on other teams and he's like why or whatever and, and the guy said one time I said what's up to a, a player on a different team and Russell Westbrook cussed me out because I said what's up to a guy on another team and, and I, I thought I've always liked Russell Westbrook because of his hyper competitiveness it's it's what I'm drawn to and the people I like in sports and I uh Uh, In this entry, I, I wrote about how I had a friend growing up who we played like over 70 basketball games a year when I was in middle school. We were in Portland every weekend. And, you know, when you when you play each other a lot, like different teams, you see the same people, people from Aloha, people from Beaverton, people from Central Oregon. You're seeing them every weekend. And over time, you're just you start to to not like them very much. I mean, they become the enemy in some ways. And I had this friend named Brian. I just went to a Blazer game with him a couple weeks ago, and we talked about this very thing. Brian would become friends with these people, and some of them would spend the night with him at his house. And and it just, it's the thing I like least about Brian, because I was wired. I'm just wired this way. To hate people who are against me, and I hated them. Some of them I still. This is so bad. I shouldn't admit this, but I still have weird feelings about these twins from Central Oregon and these guys that grew up in Aloha that I haven't seen in you know almost twenty five years or whatever. But I still feel something about them. And and I think that my attitude about sports. I'm not saying it's good. I'm just saying it is. But but it's reflective of the culture in which we live now, A, a culture where if you're not on my side, then I feel a need to hate you, to slander you, to be against you, to whatever it might be. And uh, you see this in the in politics, right? And I, I just, man, alive. The comment section of every social media website is very eye-opening for how our culture lives. This is where I get most of my sermon illustrations now and and how people think. And What I've seen in my lifetime is this great shift where where when I was growing up, for the most part, you could be a Republican and a Democrat and be friends, and you could talk about politics, you might not because there's some social stigmas around it, but you could, right? And now what I see, at least on the internet, is if the person is on the opposite political, in the opposite political party as you, then, then you just sever all ties with them and you make up a name for them, even though it might not be true, right? Like like you call them a snowflake. It's a very common term. And then I was looking up what liberal people call conservative people, like if there's just a catch-all phrase, and none of them were appropriate to say here. Uh, but the one that just seems to come up a lot is just that you're a racist, right? Like if you're on that political side, if you're on the conservative side, then you just get labeled as a racist because because it's easier than actually dealing with issues. There's so many people now, like this is like a, a thing that unfriend people on Facebook because somebody else has a different political opinion. It's like, well, we just can't even be social media friends. Just side note, just a little helpful tip. Nobody's bothered that you unfriended them because of their political party, and you're not changing anybody's viewpoints. But it's indicative of, of the modern and I mean modern, like now, not like you know, in the last 10 years, like now, how we think about people that are on a different side than us. It seems like in every walk of life we've become like Russell Westbrook or middle school Chad Harms, where it's like if you're not on my side, if you don't think like me, if you're not like me, if you don't agree with me, then then we we can't be friends. And what Jesus says in our passage today is uh it was really eye opening to me because it gave me insight not into just how we ought to not be that way but also it gave me insight into i think why we are that way and i want to give you that up front i think that that the reason we've created this culture where you can't stand in the middle and you must hate or you know mock or slander people on the opposite side of you is because we have this wrong belief that it's moral superiority to hate the person that's against us we i think wrongly think that that our moral our morality hinges on how much we dislike disregard disrespect the people on the opposite side and so we go, I, I, if I'm friends, and I don't think people have thought it through this much. I just think it's somewhere in our inner beings and our culture has taught us this. If I'm friends with a Democrat, then, then I am not holding to my moral standards of loving the disenfranchised and being there for the poor and diversity or whatever it might be. And on the opposite side, it's like if if I'm friends, if I'm friends with a conservative person, then, then – did I say that one already? I, I meant I'm in it the opposite way there. Hopefully you were paying attention, but the opposite way. If I'm friends with a Democrat, then I've given up on, you know, my belief in, in unborn children being people and and on, you know, people being able to earn their money and keep their money and, and all these other things. Right. And so I can't even I can't even love you, because if I do. Then I'm becoming immoral and I don't think people have thought it through that far. It's just the culture that I see. And I think Jesus speaks directly into it. Maybe a, a non-political uh, idea illustration will help. And I think that is like in our families. And They say that everybody has a crazy uncle. For a time in my life, my my whole one side of my family was all, it just seemed it was all crazy uncles, even if they weren't my uncles. And And I think... That sometimes in our family structures, we think that it's right to dislike the crazy one because they're bringing in the drama or their, you know, their bad influence on the kids or whatever it might be. And so if I just act like I hate them, we wouldn't say we hate them, right? But if I act like I hate them, if I'm a jerk to them, if I talk about them behind their backs, if I just don't talk to them, then I'm I'm holding to, I'm, I'm standing for something that is good. Maybe you felt something like that. And this is exactly, I think, what Jesus speaks into. We think that it is the morally right thing to do, or we feel at least, like it is the morally right thing to do, to not love those who are on the wrong side of an issue, those who are our enemies and Jesus says that's that's not true. And here's what he says at the end of chapter 5 in the book of Matthew. Matthew 5:43 you have heard that it was said love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, loving your neighbor is is pretty generally accepted, right? Like that's just an accepted idea we should love our neighbors. This was uh something that had been taught in the Jewish faith for Hundreds and thousands of years, this is something that we all kind of think should be, you know, a part of our lives. We should be loving towards our neighbors. But, and and maybe you know this, uh, at the time that Jesus lived, it was a hotly debated topic. And it was hotly debated because the question arose well, who is my neighbor? Jesus is, in fact, asked that outright, and we'll look at that in a little bit. But, like, who is my neighbor? And what it Come up in the culture, something that wasn't said is that if somebody's not our neighbor, then we shouldn't love them. God said, Love your neighbors. And so the people said, Well, we're supposed to love our neighbors. And so obviously, God meant that we hate those who aren't our neighbors. Now, God did not say that. God did not even say anything that should have been taken or understood in that way. Uh, They got this idea because. In Leviticus 19:17 and 18, uh, God talks about loving Jewish people, loving your fellow Israelite. Leviticus 19:17 says, "Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart." And as we've seen throughout the study of this sermon, called the Sermon on the Mount, the people looked for the easiest way to be obedient to the things that God had called them to be obedient to. And when it comes to love, the easiest thing and the easiest person to love is the person who is very similar to you. That's easy to love, right? And so they had said, look, here's what we'll do. God said, love the fellow Israelite. We'll just love the fellow Israelite. We won't love the foreigner. We won't love the alien. We won't love the people that God has not specifically and directly told us to love. It's funny because just a little bit earlier in Leviticus, Leviticus 19, said, 1910 it says do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen leave them for the poor and the foreigner i am the lord your god he had said look you should demonstrate love to the foreigner and the people had skipped right over that and said well he said to love israelites so we'll do our best to love israelites and nobody else and when it comes to love real love we want it to do just like them we want to do it in the easiest way Now, you would say, if you've grown up as a Christian, even if you haven't, I'm guessing, like, oh, I love everybody. But usually we just give that lip service. If you think about who you actually love and who you actively love, it's probably people that are easy to love. Your friends who are nice to you, your family that you get along with, the people in church that you're cool with. We're not that different. They're like, we'll love to the lowest degree, the easiest way, and we do exactly the same thing. And they had taken this stance that if somebody wasn't on their side, if they were an enemy, for example, the Romans who were oppressing the Jewish people at the time, there are enemies. And God said to love the fellow Israelite, and so we will hate those who are against us. They had twisted God's word so much that they had turned this, this thing that wasn't even alluded to into a command of God. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's what the religious leaders were teaching. And that is how we feel today. I will love the people who are on my side, the people that I deem morally acceptable, but I will hate or stand against or be rude to or be a jerk to the people that aren't on my side because it is the morally right thing to do. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And then in Matthew 5, 44, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for, For those who persecute you. This word persecute is more literally to cause, to flee, and perhaps more simply translated to pursue. It's the people who come after you in any sense of the word. And and we have not taken this seriously. We are not dissimilar to the Jewish people living at the time of Jesus who say, I will love my neighbor. And Jesus says, Yeah. Love your neighbor and love your enemy and pray for those that are mean to you, that are bad to you. You may have heard these verses before. They're semi-famous, but in Matthew 22, 35 through 40, we read this. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment of the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And people looked at this, and, and to them, a neighbor was somebody of the same race and religion. That's who a neighbor was to them. It was a Jew. But the same thing comes up in another very famous passage of scripture that we call the Good Samaritan. And I'm not going to read you the whole story. I'm not even going to tell the story in its, uh, to its fullest extent. But the question comes up following this. I mean, the greatest commandment is to love your neighbor. And this guy, he wants to justify himself. Because he's looking around, going, "I I love certain people, but maybe not the guy next door because he is not a Jew. He is not my race, and he is not my religion. He is not like me, and so I've I've stood against him and not for him." And so he asked Jesus this question, seeking to justify himself: "Who is Who is my neighbor?" And Jesus tells this incredible parable, maybe, uh, maybe the most memorable of all Jesus teachings. Tells him this parable where this guy is beat up and, and he's on his deathbed basically and he's laying in a ditch. You know the story, I'm sure. And two religious Jewish leaders walk by and, and they don't do anything except walk to the other side of the street. And then a Samaritan comes. And the Samaritans were, for the Jewish people, the enemies. They were the ones who were not pure-blooded Jews. They were the ones who were teaching wrong things about how to live for God and and where the future temple would be. The Jewish people despise the Samaritans. And Jesus says the Samaritan comes and he picks the guy up and he takes him to an inn and he dresses his wounds and pays the innkeeper. And then Jesus says at the end, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And Jesus in this says, look, I want to teach you about who a neighbor is, who you're supposed to love. And he changes the paradigm completely from you figure out who a neighbor is to you are the neighbor, and anybody that is in front of you is a neighbor, and so you should be loving all people. The message for that early group of hearers would have been staggering because he takes the people that they loathe, the people that they're against, and says, look, the Samaritan can do it, you should do it. And so Jesus lays out for us this incredible idea that we should love all people despite their race, religion, sexuality, how sinful they are, how bad they seem, their political party, whatever it might be, how drunk they show up to your Thanksgiving party. You should love them, not just in your word, not just like, yeah, I love everybody, but you should actively love them. Love in the Bible is not some feeling or emotion or thing that we say. It's something that we do. And Jesus says, no matter who they are, that's who you ought to love. And in so doing, he's reminding us and showing us, and this will become clear in the incentives he gives for loving our neighbors and loving everybody. He's saying, look, it is not the moral high ground to not love. It is never the morally good thing to do to not love. Even if somebody's against you, even if you don't like their agenda, even if they bother you, even if you think they're a bad example for the children, it is never the moral, morally good thing to do to not love somebody. And, and here's his kind of reasoning. Matthew 5, 45, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Children of is this Palestinian idiom for uh, people who duplicate what another has done or express themselves in the same way. It shows the origins of a person's actions. And so to be a child of is really to say, your life, the way you live, the things that you do, they are indicative of this source, and the source here is the Father in heaven, God. He says, if you love all people, even the ones who are against you, then you are duplicating the actions of God in heaven. You are showing yourself to be a child of God. And, and what he does here is, is he describes what theologians later have called, has, have called common grace. And common grace is this, this term that demonstrates something that we all know. God is gracious even to people that, that don't love him, that don't follow him, that mock him, that hate him, that are against him, right? And he says the the sun comes and the rain comes even to the unrighteous. But we might say it this way, like even people who blatantly and openly reject and despise God, they can still know how awesome it is to be a parent. Like God gives grace to all people. Now, we know as Christians that that doesn't mean that, that nobody will be judged, that it isn't important for people to accept the gospel of Jesus. We know that it doesn't mean that every person will get into heaven, but every person is loved by God, and God graciously gifts every person. People eat even if they hate God. And even more than that, the gospel story that I just alluded to says that God loves Everyone. He loved us while we were still sinners. And the story that we believe as Christians is that God looked down. He looked down from heaven and he saw that humanity had rejected him. And he saw that there was no way for us to be reconciled to him, to once again have a relationship with him. We were his enemies for all intents and purposes. And so God stepped out of heaven. He came in the person of Jesus. He lived sinlessly amongst the people who were enemies to him. In fact, lots of them fought against him while he lived. And some of them nailed him to a cross at the end of that life. And then as he hung on that cross, he looked down. He said, as we talked about last week, Father, forgive them. He continued to love. And he was hung on that cross because he loved people who were against him so much. And then he got out of the grave a few days later, rising again from the dead. And he did it all for people who were actively rejecting him. I mean, the first sermon ever preached, the Holy Spirit comes, the first sermon after Jesus' resurrection, I should say, the Holy Spirit comes upon the people. And there's a bunch of Jews who are in town for a holiday. And and Peter stands up and he looks at this group of people and he's like, you nailed your Messiah to the cross. But oh, by the way, if you'll just repent and accept him as your savior, then you can be in relationship with him again. In Romans 5.10, it says, while we were God's enemies, we were, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. You know, John 3.16, God died. Jesus died for the world. Whether you are on God's side or not, Jesus died for you. Jesus loves you. God has given you his incredible grace. He has actively pursued you. He is calling you into a relationship with him. You can reject that if you want to, but God is still calling you, drawing you to accept the gift of salvation that he offered through Jesus. And sometimes we go, It's morally right for me to not love people that are not on my side. But Jesus says, if you want to look like God in heaven, if you want to be like him, if you want to be, uh, if you want to show yourself to be his son, then you love people that are against you, even if they're hurting you, even if they're tearing at the very things that you deem good. So if you want to be like God, if you want to act like God, if you want to be a true follower of Jesus and show yourself to be a true follower of Jesus, then you got to be somebody that loves all people, not just people that you agree with, not just people who are on your side, not just people who think like you, not just the people that are easy to love. The message of the Sermon on the Mount, this book that I've been using through this whole series, it's incredible. It says, our Christian calling is to imitate not the world, but the Father. And it is by this imitation of him that the Christian counterculture becomes visible. And perhaps there is no easier way to see this than in us loving those who are against us. We're not known for that, right? I think Christians are seen as people who who do more to stand against the opposition who hate more the people that are not like them i heard this story the other day and and the, and the whole point of, of the story was was ultimately good and um and and i'm just going to take one small part just to describe how it made me feel and and so this guy was was given his testimony and he, and he said you know, I had this gay friend, and, and he he asked me if we wanted to have coffee, uh, if I wanted to have coffee, and um, and I think it was about spiritual things because this guy was trying to get into the ministry or whatever. And he said, he said, um, I was really reluctant to go because I didn't want people to think I was gay. I was like, oh, that just doesn't sound like Jesus. I mean, how many opportunities did Jesus have to? to not love people that it would have looked bad for him to love I mean when a Samaritan woman walks up to him I mean his first thought could have been like this is gonna look awkward if we're here standing around this well together but he doesn't do that or when a tax collector comes up and and wants to have him over for dinner he could have said like this will look like I'm supporting this awful system of tyranny that exists in our culture where tax collectors rip people off, and there's a woman caught in adultery, and, and people are ready to stone her, it would have been the easy thing to say, look, the loving thing for me to do, the right thing for me to do is to say, stone her, because she has not lived right, and I don't want to look like I'm embracing this sin that she has so freely committed But at no turn in the story of Jesus, do we see him reject people because it looks bad or because they're not on the right team or because they haven't chosen to be his followers. That is not to say that Jesus doesn't take a stand against sin because he does. He has a lot to say to the religious leaders who are teaching one thing and doing another. The Sermon on the Mount is in large part a response to how bad their teaching is. But he loves people and he does the loving thing to people, whether it's call them out on their sin or embrace them in the midst of their sin. He does the loving thing over and over and over again. It is never the morally right thing to do to not love somebody. It's never the morally right thing to do. I wrote it this way and I think it's helpful. If God is not too holy to love his enemies, then you are not too holy to love yours. If God is not too holy to love his enemies, then you are not too holy to love yours. For those of you who don't know what holiness is, holiness is this idea of being set apart, of being, frankly, just better than when it comes to spiritual things. And we believe that God is is perfectly holy, perfectly set apart. He is not tainted by sin. He is not tainted by anything uh, that is imperfect. And yet he can love. Even those who hate him. And so we should be able to as well. Jesus continues and he's like, if you love those who love you, what reward will that get you? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? The usual way of love in our society is one of reciprocity. I mean, it's like you love those who love you. That's how it works. But Jesus looks, again, he uses this this group of people who would have been the enemy, the tax collectors. They were robbing people of their money. They were taking way more money than they needed to take. And he says, they, they love people who love them. They love their children. They love their spouses. They seem to hate everybody else, and, and they steal from everybody else. But they love the people that love them. And as Christians, I think we were like, oh, yeah, if I just, you know, you love the people in front of me that are nice to me and you know think like me then god's going to give me a big thumbs up and and jesus is like everybody's like that you think you're special you think that that god's going to give you something great when you get to heaven because you love the people who are easy to love everybody does that that's normal That's natural, but we are called to something supernatural as Christians. We are called to something uh, above and beyond normal. And perhaps that is no more clear than when it comes to the people that we love. We should love all people, even the people who are against us. And then he says, and if you greet only your people, what are you doing that's more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Like groups love each other typically, and we greet people that are like us, and we're friends with people that are like us, and we're kind to people that are like us, and we'll help people move that are like us. But when somebody stands against us and stands in opposition to the things that we believe or feel or think, then we don't. We don't far too often. And and Jesus is like, don't even the pagans, mean-sounding word for people that just outright reject God, don't even the pagans do that? Don't they, aren't they nice to, aren't they kind to people that are kind to them, that think like them, that look like them, that sound like them, that talk like them? And, and the answer is yes, they, they, they are. And the key word in this last verse is more, because Christians are called to something far more than that which is normal. And I think we've forgotten that in our society, our Christian culture. We say things that we ought not say like, oh, I'm only human. I'm only human. Like, how am I going to love those people? But that's that's not the reality. We are not only human. We are humans that are gifted and indwelled by the Holy Spirit if we give our lives to Jesus. We are humans that are now following Jesus trying to live our lives like him, trying to act like him, trying to be like him, trying to treat people like he treated people. We are to be more. And that sounds arrogant. I know if you're not a Christian, it sounds arrogant that we would say we we can be more, we should be more, we're trying to be more. But we're not saying it's because of us. Like we're not any better than you naturally. We just believe in the power of God. God. And we believe that when God comes into our lives, it, it, it does something more. I wouldn't be a Christian if it wasn't better to be a Christian. And so Jesus looks at us and he reminds us that, that we can't just love like everybody else. And that's the key question, I think. Like when you think about who you love and how you love. Is it any different than, than the guy that you know at work that doesn't have a relationship with God? Because if it's not different, then you're not taking seriously the words of Jesus here to not just love our neighbors, but to love our enemies and pray for those who are against us. I defined years ago, and, and not years ago, love is them above you is their good you pursue because of their value. Them above you is their good you pursue because of of their value. We like the idea of love, but how many people that are not like you, that are not friends with you, that are not easy to love, are you actually pursuing their good because you look at them and you value them? And here's what's so unique and special about being a Christian. We believe that all people have inherent value and worth. We believe that because God created them in his image, and we believe that because God proved their value and worth by being willing to come and suffer and die on their behalf. I've taught on this before in a series about love from 1 Corinthians 13, but but we see the value just as natural humans in a lot of different relationships, right? I mean, we look at, at our family, and we say, wow, I value my family because there's support there. They're, they've helped me along the way. They'll always be there for me. And so it's easy to love most of our family because it's like we see their value. And, and we love our our romantic interests, whether we're married or dating people, because they make us feel something, right? Like there's a positive feeling that comes. And and we have this grand idea of marriage and the support that will be there and, and how they'll so they'll, in some ways, they will replace our families, uh, what they do for us in our lives. We see that. And we see the value in our children because uh, we, we see ourselves in them, I think, a lot of times. And what's so interesting to me about these different relationships that we have in our lives is that it's easy to love because those people create value for us. And so we look at them, and we see their value, and we say, I'll pursue your good because I see your value to me. But when we accept the gospel story is true, that Jesus gave his life for all people, we now should look at all people and say, I see your value not because you benefit me, but because I'm following a Savior who gave his life for you, no matter whether you were benefiting him or not. And Christians are in this unique position to look at every person, even the person who hates our guts, and say, I see your value. I don't have his name written down and this just popped into my head now as an important illustration but did you see this missionary explorer kid who was killed this week trying to reach a native village there's this group of people it's it's on a island off the coast of India and and like they have no contact with outsiders they I mean it'd be like going back in time but nobody's been able to to learn anything about them because nobody can go on the island the uh Indian government has has said you can't go there and and this kid 26 years old christian from vancouver washington actually he, he wrote this journal at the end before they killed him and he's like i'm scared but aren't these people worth telling jesus about and this was after he had been shot at once by an arrow and he went back and they killed him and his body will be there forever. It's unique to Christians that we would look at this group that has no contact to the outside world and, 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 and they're not contributing to our societies or our cultures at all. And this young man said something that we should all say. Aren't they worth it? Aren't they worth it? And what Jesus shows us. And what we can hear in his teaching is that no matter whether somebody is shooting arrows at us or just making fun of us or they don't like us or whatever, they are still worth our love. And we know that because God loved them so much that he gave his life for them. And then Jesus concludes this section that we've been looking at called the antithesis section. And he says this thing that's kind of a hard teaching in Matthew five forty eight. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And it's a great, I think it's a great concluding passage to, our verse to our passage today. Because um, this one very old Christian theologian said, the very highest summit of self-control is praying for our enemies. So he's like building, right? Like last week we talked about how we shouldn't seek revenge. And now we're talking about loving and praying for those who are against us. And there's this progression. And uh, it's an important progression. Like don't take evil initiative. Don't avenge another's evils. Be quiet in suffering. Suffer. Wrongfully, If that's what you have to do, surrender to the evildoer even more than he demands. That's what we talked about last week. Do not hate an evil evildoer, but love him and do good to him. And then perhaps the highest of all is just to pray for them. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, this is the supreme command. Through the medium of prayer, we go to our enemy, stand by his side, and plead for him to God. How many of the people that you're against are you praying for? I don't know. We pray for those we're close to. We ask them to be safe while they travel and all that. But how many of your enemies, the people who are against you in any way, how many of them are you praying for? But this verse is also a great finishing statement to the antithesis section as a whole, like where Jesus is like, you've heard it said, but I say. Because it's like what we should be aiming for. Here's what happens with this verse. This happens with so much in the Sermon on the Mount. We look at this verse and it says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And and we do one of two things. One, we say, that's not possible. I can't be perfect. And so I won't try. And two, the other thing that happens with this verse is people start arguing about whether or not you can be perfect. Can a person be morally perfect while they're still living on this earth? Uh, Certain theologians in history of the church have thought you can and, and, and most think you can't. But that's not what we should do with the Bible. You should never ignore the Bible because it seems hard. And you should never just argue about the Bible. You should try to do what it says. And I'm not here to tell you whether or not you can be perfect one day or not, but I think what the Sermon on the Mount does as a whole is it calls you to something more. It says, look, as a Christian, there is a better way to do things. And we ought not go, that's too hard. I'll never be perfect, so I'm not going to try. We should say, well, I might never be perfect, but I'm going to aim to be as much like God as I can. Forgiving wrongs, loving enemies being so truthful and so good that we are, as we began this series by talking about salt and light, we are agents of something so valuable and profound that it changes our culture. Be perfect like your heavenly father. There's this great quote that that came up a couple times when I was researching this and I, I want to read it. we'll just about be done. Alfred Plummer wrote a, a big commentary on the Bible. He said, to return evil for good is devilish. To return good for good is human. To return good for evil is divine. So I want you to think about who might be against you, who you don't like. And then I want you to remember that if God is not too holy to love his enemies, then you are not too holy to love yours. Let me pray that that will happen. Lord Jesus. I thank you for loving me while I was your enemy, God. And even after I've accepted your gospel as true and I've given you my life, you know there's been far too many times when I've done things that stand in opposition to who you are, God, and what you've called me to, and through it all, you've loved me. And I pray, God, that we as a congregation, I pray, God, for each of us who are here this morning and those who will listen online, that we, God, would would love people, even people that are hard to love, even people that it feels morally right to not love, even those that are against you, we would love them, God, because we're trying to be like you. God, I pray for people that don't know your love, that have not accepted you as their Savior, and I ask, God, that they would give their lives to you because they're never going to truly experience love infinite love, at least, if they don't embrace the gift that you've offered through the cross. So I pray that they would accept it, God, that you'd convict their hearts of their sin, that you would show them, God, that they are standing in opposition to you, but that you are calling them into a relationship with you, and you want to change them, God, from being enemies into children. And God, for those of us that are your children that have accepted that gift, I pray that we live right and we love people and that you would remind us daily, every time somebody posts something on Facebook, every time a co-worker does something that we don't like, every time a family member shows up and causes a problem, I pray that you would remind us that if you are not too holy to love your enemies, then we are not too holy to love ours. I pray these things, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen.